peace. All these things can happen if you are willing to listen for my summons and go in. 2020 musical year. Thank you so much, Mr. Koch and choir and the wonderful uh, ensemble here. Samuel Levinson said it well. You must learn from the mistakes of others. You can't possibly live long enough to make them all yourself. It's true. So it is that we can be grateful to the ancient church in Corinth for messing up their communion service. If there wouldn't have been problems in Corinth, if there wouldn't have been divisions and serious disregard for people at the Lord's table, Paul would never have written to correct them. We would not have known anything about his views about this meal or even that the church has practiced this. What Paul says in this portion in Corinthians reveals that the Lord's Supper is central to worship in the Christian church based on traditions going all the way back to Jesus himself. And it's already, after 25 years, carrying weight and meaning for believers. So I have to say, thank God for problems. Thank God that we can learn here what Paul reveals to us about the Lord's Supper. Trouble in the Corinthian church is our instructor. And Paul's rebuke, his advice, is of great importance to us today. And when we look at it, there are three themes that stand out for us that I'd like to highlight. First of all, the Lord's Supper is an extreme expression of unity in the body of Christ. The practice in Corinth was far from that. Paul was devastated by what was going on there. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and 18 say, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meanings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So there were divisions in the church at Corinth. The community had really been instructed and encouraged by Paul over and over again about divisions happening there. The church in Corinth was divided over leadership. It was divided over opinions about whether to eat food that had been offered to, uh, at pagan rituals. It was divided over marriage, about singleness. They, were, they argued about arguments that they had and how to deal with them, whether to settle them in, in legal court or within believers. They already argued about an incestuous relationship that was going on among them. They argued about spiritual gifts, and they just argued. So <clears throat> maybe we shouldn't be surprised that they also argued about how to express this celebration of the Lord's Supper. This meal was supposed to be a celebration of oneness within the body, but instead it became an occasion for shaming people in the body of Christ. The service that we practice today is really nothing like what they did back in Paul's day. And the way we do it today has been a part of the worship service in Christian churches for centuries. Today, you're going to receive a a small piece of bread and a a small cup of juice, symbolizing Christ's body and Christ's blood. But when it was first experienced in the early church, this is not the way they practiced the Lord's Supper. The meal took place not in a sanctuary like this, not in churches, but in private homes. In, the days, in those days, back then, Christianity was not something that occurred. The, the public worship wasn't something that, that happened in church buildings. There were no separate buildings for Christians to gather in. And the communion meal was just that, a meal. An actual meal eaten by believers, part of the members, the members of the community, as they met together in believers' homes. 
And the part where they shared the cup and the bread symbolizing Christ's body and blood was a part of that common meal. But in Corinth, instead of a celebration of their unity, of their oneness in Christ, the meal had become a a sign of the social divisions that existed among them. The The service was strident, you could say, strident with status and privilege and and position, exclusiveness. Imagine, if you would, just to get a feeling, imagine going on a picnic, picnic with a large group of friends, and you get to the picnic spot. For some reason, the slides are not working this morning. Is that? Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, uh, imagine that you um, are on a picnic. You, you get to the picnic spot, and it's already been set out, and there's an elaborate spread of tableware and glasses and, and um, several are already there having served themselves some exclusive and uh, delicious food and also expensive walla walla wine. But there's not enough room for you at that table and so you just gather around that table and the rest of the group that gathers with you um, ends up sitting around on the outside and you get not this expensive cuisine, but just meager sandwiches and then bottled water. Would that seem like a nice picnic to you? Or if you thought of it, what would that feel like if it were a worship experience? What if you were meeting for worship? But that's what was going on. Look at verse number 20 and 21. So then, when you come together, isn't that the Lord's Supper you eat? For when you are eating... Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. (laughs) Is this really an expression of what God's people are supposed to be doing? It's hard for us to even imagine what was taking place. But this was normal procedure in that culture, in that day. Back in New Testament times, people with means, the substance, and wealth, prided themselves in showing hospitality to those who were less well-off, but they showed that hospitality in a way that clearly demonstrated who was wealthy and who was not. That's just the way they did it. In typical houses of those days, they had dining areas, and the dining area could hold maybe nine or so people, and this was reserved for the closest, most exclusive friends and at that table there was excellent food and drink and would be served but they oftentimes had other guests maybe 10 20 30 40 that would sit not at that table but around the table in areas around the dining room and they would be served food and drink not from that table but secondary food that was sort of off the mark sort of of lower quality and in Corinth that's really what was going on and it was the case, it seems, that the hosts of this meal, of the, of the meals that were the, the Lord's Supper for the early church, were being held at these wealthy people's houses, but they became an expression of social stratification, if you know what I mean. In Corinth, these wealthy hosts would invite people, but it was an experience of shame and not of coming together. The difference would have been something, well, it would have even been more glaring than walking through the first-class section of a Boeing Dreamliner on your way to the cattle section. You know what I mean? And you pass by that luxurious, those luxurious seats with the armrests and elbow room and upgraded food and pampered care. Has anybody here ridden on first class? Don't raise your hands now. I have. Not because I paid for it, but I was bumped up because they made a mistake and so they gave me first class and I'm telling you what, it was nice. It was nice. A warm, moist towel brought to me right at the start so I could wipe my hands and face and neck and delicious food, did I say? Delicious food? <laughs> and pampered care for, from a polite stewardess continual attention that's really what was happening here at Corinth there was like first class and second class in the worship service 
dinner hosts were doing this way, this dinner, the way pagans celebrated their festivals. The well-to-do arrived first because they didn't have anything to do. And so they came and sat around the inner table and had good and plenty. But the poorer people who had to work arrived later and had to sit around the table and got leftovers. That's what was happening. A meager meal. Sometimes not even anything. By the time the poor people got food, the rich were already full, and some of them, Paul says, were drunk. Imagine it. It wasn't just bad manners. It was a breach of equality. It was inequality at its worst. It was shaming people. Paul says, verse number 21, one is hungry, another one becomes drunk. (laughs) Now that may have been happening in Paul's day. But it's an outrage when it happens as part of the worship service. And that's what was happening. And Paul says, when you come together to worship for the Lord's Supper, there should be no shaming. There should be no richer or poor. There should be no haves and have-nots. This meal, Paul says, symbolizes the unity that we have and enjoy and experience in the body of Christ, God's church. However, Paul says that the way the church in Corinth were doing it despises the church. Look at verse number 22. You, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. I kind of like the way the New English Bible puts that. Uh, it, it says there, or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God by shaming those who have nothing? Notice these two words, contempt for the church of God, shaming, that's what was happening here. Communion was not meant to be an act that divides people. It was a a service where we bring people together. Oftentimes we think of communion as just a private affair, an act of devotion, personal devotion. I come to receive this from the Lord and and, and experience again the blessing of forgiveness. It certainly is that. It certainly is a, a private experience. But it also is a coming together. A coming together as us, members of the body of Christ. A demonstration of unity and equality and, and friendship and brotherhood and sisterhood. All members of the body of Christ. That's what it is. I know it doesn't feel that way, the way we practice it. But it was in New Testament times because it was a meal together. But... Just to remind you, the bread that we will be sharing was once part of a larger loaf. It's cut into little pieces for you. The cup that we share has just a bit of juice, but it came from a larger vessel. That's why we distribute it to all of you, and we hold it until we all eat it together. Because it's a meal together with all of us. No divisions among us. There's a connection between you and me. There's a connection Your joy is my joy. Your hardship is my hardship. I care for you. You care for me. We're brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And if we discern the body of Christ rightly, if we see the church as we ought, that this oneness that we experience here today in the communion service ought to extend beyond this place in love and care and concern for others. That's also why it's appropriate at the end of the service, you'll be given that opportunity as well to take up an offering, a benevolent offering. We do that every time here at Village Church. That's another way for us to help each other. When there's a member in need, we have a reserve. Someone can express that need and we can help them in a private sort of way so that there's no embarrassment, no shaming. But with those resources, we can help families that are part of this church that are struggling, maybe with rent or maybe with utilities or gas or you know, car repairs or something. But that's what the church is. And if we discern the church rightly, it's about being together. It's about being a body together and one together. Unity, brotherhood, caring communion. That's Paul's first emphasis. There's a second. I mentioned there are three. The second emphasis that Paul brings to us is that 
the Lord's Supper is also, and primarily so, a memory of the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what we oftentimes associate with it. It's a service wherein we remember again by telling the story again, the story of Jesus' death for us, for our salvation again. Paul told it to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth told it to friends, and that was shared with people in Rome. And people in Rome shared it with people in Alexandria. And people in Alexandria, and I'm going on here, shared it with people in Paris. There was no Paris then. But, you know, eventually it went to Paris and to London and eventually to Beijing and Collie's Place. Verse number 24 and 25. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This service that we celebrate today is Jesus' offering, his self-offering. He's giving himself. Jesus' death was no accident. It wasn't some tragic mistake of a judicial uh, system. Jesus freely gave himself for you and for me. And when we take the bread, when we take the cup, it is our yes to what Jesus has done for us. It is our yes. We are accepting his incalculable gift when we take that. To know Jesus, to know Jesus is to know him in the communion story. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant in my body. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now you notice there that Jesus says, remember. He said that this bread represents, this cup symbolizes. That's what he says. My blood, my body. But you know, it's more than just a symbolic act. We're doing more than just merely eating bread and juice in just a few moments. We're doing more than that. By faith, when we take the cup, when we take the bread, we are meaningfully, we are meaningfully participating in the reality of Jesus Christ. By faith, we are connected to him, to the broken body, to the spilled blood. That's what's happening. We are called to remember, Paul says, the sacrifice. But that remembering in the Bible is something more than just thinking of the past. In the Bible, to remember something, when God remembers something, that means his blessings become a current reality. When God remembers you, he is there to bring about something good for you. I like the way that my seminary professor, Ivan Blazin, said it in his book, Gospel on the Street. This is what he said. In the Bible, remembering makes the past present. Not only in the saving sense of mental recall, but also of experience in the present. Thus, as we remember Jesus' broken body and spilled blood, the saving power of these events nourishes our lives. We share in the presentness of God's salvation. That's what's happening here. We share in Him with us today. The bread and the juice are just bread and juice. There's no changing like some groups think that occurs. But Christ is here among us. He is here with us by his spirit. The reality of his death and resurrection and and ascension and and intercession for us, the reality of his powerful life-giving sacrifice is what this communion service is about. I like the way Ellen White expresses it in the book Desire of Ages. This is what she says. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is there to set the seal on his own ordinance. Get that. He's there for the repentant, brokenhearted one. He is waiting. All things are ready for that soul's reception. Isn't that neat? It is at these, his own appointments, that Christ meets his people and energizes them by his presence. Christ is there to minister to his children. Christ is here. And then speaking of those who come to this supper, this is what she says. Now they come to meet with Christ 
in full consciousness of his presence. Although unseen, they are to hear his words, peace I leave with you. He's unseen, but he's here. He's here with us. Again, as faith contemplates our Lord's great sacrifice, the soul assimilates the spiritual life of Christ. That soul will receive spiritual strength from every communion. The service forms a living connection by which the believer is bound up with Christ. I have to say amen to that. That's what this is all about. So the second energizing truth for me from this service, from this supper, is that we are focused on Christ's death. His death, his sacrificial death for us. And he is present spiritually to bless and strengthen us. He is a giver. We are the needy receivers. We are the recipients of his self-giving. As we take the bread and the cup in a few minutes, we acknowledge our own desperate need and God's amazing grace. That's what happens. We are strangers and alienated from God by our own wrong, by our own deeds, but we're brought back by God's costly act for us. Radical grace. And having been brought back by this immeasurable act of grace in Jesus Christ, we naturally lean into generosity. As God has been generous with us, we become generous. Since God is loving toward us, I become loving. I live in remembrance of the one who gave himself for me. The trouble with the church in Corinth was that they were celebrating this service and totally disregarding God's grace in their life. How else could they have been doing it the way they did it unless they totally disregarded it? That outworking of his grace should not have resulted in those kind of relationships with people in the church, with that stratification and that shaming that was taking place. It was like they were suffering from amnesia by acting rudely, contemptuously toward others, especially though others with less. They were acting as though they hadn't changed. Nothing had changed in their life or in the world. And that's why Paul says, when you're doing communion, you're not even doing it. Look at verse number 26. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Can you believe it? That's pretty straight, isn't it? How'd you like that? Have a letter to Village Church. The problem isn't that they're they're not saying the right words. They're saying the right words. They're not living the right life. They're acting out those words in ways that are deficient. They're self-serving. Jesus was self-giving. The church so failed that that Paul tells them the story again. The story of Jesus. And he tells it again to us today. The story of Jesus. And that's what we take today. The story of Jesus. Finally, I'll finish with this just a short thought here. The Lord's Supper, according to Paul, in his instruction to the church in Corinth, is an occasion to ponder God's judgment. That's what he says, verses 27 to 29. So then, whoever eats the bread and and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. You know, some of us are so acutely aware of our own guilt and unworthiness that we shy away from this place. We don't want to come to this service. We so recognize our failures that we feel exposed and condemned when we don't come. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you're thinking, boy, when this is done, when Jeff's done here, I'm just going to slip on out. You need to know that communion, first and foremost, communion, first and foremost, is an offer of grace. It's grace, not condemnation. Here and now, God offers grace. God offers restoration. And he offers us a time to reflect. To reflect on our lives. 
Because one day we're going to stand before that great and awesome judgment throne, aren't we? Someday we all are. He's a great judge before whom all living will stand. And we will never stand before him on any merit or right standing of our own. Never. On this day, every day, when we stand before him, it won't be a consequence of our own doing. It'll be of his doing, by his goodness, by his grace. So that's why we take the cup. That's why we take the bread. Christ died equally for all. His body was broken to forge us into one caring church. His new body. At this time, we're going to separate for our foot washing service. You're welcome to remain here in the sanctuary if you wish. If you're young and would like to hear a story, Virginia is going to be over here in the overflow for you. Um, but you can separate, and we have three options. Ladies gather, it's in your bulletin, uh, several places here on this floor. Gentlemen gather on this floor and up on, in the Sabbath school wing, and families can go up into the fellowship hall. Then we'll join together to share the, the emblems of our Lord's body and blood.
was far from home, away from the familiar and routine, reeling from a painful interaction with someone I had trusted to be a friend. As a child, I was taught to base my faith not on feelings, but on the word of God. We're also told that prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. So being a person of strong feeling, I have discovered that God is bigger than my feelings. No matter how intense they may be, he can handle them. So there I was, far from home, pouring out my heart to him in the early hours of the morning. In heartache and quiet desperation, I told the Lord, I need you to fill my love cup. Imagining I had an empty glass, I raised my hand as though to give him the glass. I waited, then saw the glass return to me, now filled with sweet nectar. Profoundly grateful for this symbol of his love for me, I searched my soul but was still troubled. So I handed him another empty glass, this time begging for him to fill my comfort cup. Tenderly, it was returned, frosty-sided and full of milk. The symbolism amazed me, and I was indeed comforted, but my heart still hurt. Finally, I cried out to him, Lord, I still feel empty. It's like I have this big gallon jug of need to feel that I belong. In my imagination, I handed him an empty plastic container. When it was given back to me, now filled, I, I was shocked. Blood? Oh, Lord, why blood? The answer came gently, because Jesus is kin. I said, oh, wow. Jesus is my kin. No, the tender correction came. Jesus is kin. I cannot claim him as mine alone. He belongs to all humanity, even the people who hurt us, and we all belong to him. With that realization, my deep heart need was completely met. I left the place of prayer to face the day filled and quieted in my soul. This communion service, the grape juice, represents the precious blood of Jesus that makes us kin, brothers and sisters in Christ and with Christ, our elder brother, who makes it possible for us to call Holy God our Father. Praise his name. I have been struck by the parallel between bread and opportunity. A couple of Bible stories illustrate this. On a dark night long ago in Egypt, the children of Israel were invited on an opportunity to be a nation for God. Their meal consisted of bread, not unlike what we're going to have. Years later, on a warm spring morning by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus invited his disciples to a meal, an opportunity to join him on a mission that would change the world. Their meal was bread and fish. Three years later, Jesus invited his disciples on yet another opportunity. This one was a warm spring night, and the communion service, not unlike what we are having here today, had bread and wine. And on a somewhat rainy and somewhat fall-like noontime in College Place, we're, welcome, we're invited with Jesus to share the bread and wine for an opportunity for us. Where will that lead us? I invite the congregation to remain where you are seated while those of us at the table kneel in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a precious gift you have given to humanity. Jesus, our Redeemer and friend. And Jesus, we are rightfully yours because you made us. We are rightfully yours because you died to redeem us. Yet you purchased free choice for us at the cross, making it possible for us to choose to reject you and walk away from your incredible love if we so desire. What an amazing God you are. Forgive us for the choices we make so readily that hurt you deeply. Connect us to you now, Lord, that as we drink this grape juice, which symbolizes the blood of our precious Savior, we will open our hearts to receive from you comfort, healing, and a deep sense of belonging to the family of God. And Father, as we eat this bread that symbolizes your body, help us be aware that time is passing for us, that we have opportunities for you, a chance to show your love to the world around us. Please be with us as we capitalize on those opportunities 
as we eventually join you in heaven to meet the, eat this meal again. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. Eat and drink all of it. The scriptures say that on the night that Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn and went out. I'd like to invite you to turn in your hymnal to number 400 and stand with me as we sing our closing song, I Come With Joy. four verses. As you exit the sanctuary this morning, you'll be given the opportunity to uh, contribute toward our benevolent fund that helps those in our church family that are in need at various times. God bless you. Happy Sabbath.